All right, so we are continuing in the series through the Gospel of John, and uh, we are in week number five, fifth message in the Gospel of John, and it's in the series, The Eternal Word. I've titled the message this morning, They Have No Wine. They Have No Wine. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to open your word this morning. God, we count it a privilege to open your word. Lord, we do believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God. And that you have spoken to us most clearly through your word. It is what we can base our life upon. For salvation and for the living of this life. And so Lord, we don't take it lightly that we get to read and to hear your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to receive and to grow in the areas that you would call us to. And Lord, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, to introduce what we're going to talk about here this morning, I have to ask you a question. Have you ever started a project at your home? And I'm thinking in particular, maybe like the one that I really don't like a lot is a plumbing project. And you start the project, and you think you have all the parts that you need. You think you have enough to finish, and you begin the project, and and you're tweaking, and you're moving, and you're connecting, and then you turn the water on, and it's running, and then sure enough, drip, 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 drip. You turn the water off, and you you wipe it up, and you you take it all apart again. You realize, oh, well, I don't have that piece or that connection so then you have to go back to Lowe's or to Home Depot and you got to get another part and you come back and you you put it all back together again and you turn the water on and you run it and you let it drain and you look under the sink and it's drip 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 your project is still not done you know what I do at that point is I I call a plumber (laughs) and that is one area that I I am I just do not have the skills for. There's other things that, that I can make do with. Somebody, what's that? Somebody said something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Somebody was talking to the camera. I'm sorry. I thought they were talking to me. Sorry, Shane. <laughs> I thought you were talking to me. Um, I, you know, there's some projects. <laughs> we can edit this out the video. Uh, there's, some, there's some projects that uh, I'm more comfortable with. But even, even the projects I'm comfortable with, you get to the point, you prepare, you think you have it all together and ready, and you think you're finished, you think you have all that you need, and then you, sure enough, you got to make one trip, two trip, three trips back to the hardware store because you ran out. And in this story that we're going to look at here, this is the, the first of eight signs that John writes in his gospel, eight miracles that Jesus did that he records. Jesus did many other miracles. Actually, the, the gospel of John says that if, if all the miracles that Jesus did were written, uh, there would not be enough books. If all the signs he did, there wouldn't be enough books to put them in, to write them in. But John focuses on eight miracles that Jesus did, that Jesus did, that point to one main purpose. And John 20 tells us that, It's that you would believe that Jesus is God and that by believing you would have life in his name. And so this is the first of those eight signs. And and he does an amazing miracle. He turns water into wine. It is his first miracle. He turned water into wine. The bridegroom's family thought they had enough wine. 
They thought they had. They had prepared, just like that project you prepare for. They had prepared for this wedding feast. They thought they had enough wine, but they ran out of wine. So we're going to look at this first miracle, the first of eight signs of the Gospel of John. Let's look at John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the, <coughs> when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants had, who had drawn out the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, when people, and when people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum and his, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So here's how I want to frame this story, this account of this first sign that Jesus demonstrated. This was his first miracle that Jesus ever did, was right here. It's his first sign that he performed. It was turning water into wine. And there was two other signs we're going to look at as we go through the Gospel of John 1 and John 5, 1 and John 6. In John 5, we see Jesus heals a paralytic On the Sabbath day. And people complain to Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath day. So Jesus breaks into a sermon to discuss the reality of what that sign points to, which is his deity. And he tells them, I'm Lord over the Sabbath, by the way. He tells, he he performs a miracle and preaches a sermon. John 6 is another area, is another section we'll get to. And Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John 6. And if you know John 6, John 6 is a very long chapter. So Jesus feeds 5,000 people, not counting women and children, and then he preaches a sermon. John 6 is a lengthy discourse of a conversation. What was the point of the sermon that Jesus preached after feeding the 5,000? He declared himself to be the bread of life. So this is what we're going to do. This is the lens we're going to look at. If Jesus had preached a sermon... After turning water into wine, what might his main points have been? That's the frame that we're going to look at it. And here's what I think the first point could have been that Jesus would have preached. Had he preached a sermon after turning water into wine, the first point could have been this. God has an unfolding plan to put his glory on display. That's the first thought here this morning. God has an unfolding plan to put his glory on display. Look back at the text, John 2. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited with his disciples. The wine ran out. They have no wine. Jesus, his mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then look at verse the verse, the verse after, or, or the last verse of the section, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. So let's, let's unpack what's happening here. 
Mary approaches Jesus with a problem of earthly significance, a problem for the family of the groom. In that culture, the groom's family was responsible for the week-long wedding celebration. You know, nowadays, who's responsible to pay for the wedding? The bride. And all, and all of you, uh, the, all of you uh, parents who have just girls, don't you wish that this tradition was still around, that it was just the groom uh, family, the groom's family had to pay for everything? In Jesus' day, right, it was, it was the bride's. It, it, excuse me, it was the groom's family. In our day, it's the bride's family has to pay. And so this would have been a big deal. This is, it wasn't just like in our day where we have one day where we gather for a wedding. Aren't you glad? I guess, kind of, been a lot of money to be spent. This was a week-long celebration. This is planned months, if not years, in, in advance. There was arranged marriages that would take place. This is planned a long time in advance. Preparations were made for a week-long celebration culminating in the wedding on the final day. And so, you should not run out of anything. You ever run out of something and you have, you, you know, you've got two or three days to prepare? Yeah, but, but they had a lot longer than one week. They had many months, months, months before to prepare, to store up the food and, and the wine and the refreshments and all the details that were necessary for the wedding. Who, who, who likes to plan weddings? Oh, that's torture, is it not? I mean, my wedding was not torture. I'm glad, I didn't have to, I'm glad I didn't have a big part in the planning. I just had to show up and kiss my wife <laughs> and ride off to New Orleans and then to Tennessee, right? I'm glad that was, only, that was my part to play. But planning a wedding, you don't miss the details, especially if you have time, right? But they ran out of wine. This would have been a terrible thing to take place. And, not, and in that culture, it, there would have been a stigma that would have been placed on the family of the groom. You know what would have actually would have happened too was not only was it the groom's family was family's responsibility to take care of all the provisions and the and the food and the refreshments and the wine, but it was would have fallen on the groom as well. And so the father of the bride could have looked at the groom and said, I don't know if this guy can take care of you. <laughs> I don't know if he's the one for you, right? We get to the wedding feast and he runs out of wine, he runs out of provisions. Is he really the one that can take care of you? It would have been something that could have even potentially reached to the point where, where there could have, have to have been restitution that would have had to have taken place. That's how significant weddings were. That's how significant the celebration was. And so Mary comes to Jesus and she walks up to her son and she says, hey, they have no wine. They've ran out. Why would, Jesus, why would Mary come to Jesus? When they ran out of wine. Some people would say, well, it's because he, 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 he raised a dead chicken one day. And he, uh, he, turned, he turned milk into some other beverage. Or he did some little small miracles. We have no account of that. that. That's just made up. That's just people making up stuff. It says here that this was the first sign that Jesus performed. She didn't come to Jesus because she saw him doing a bunch of little mini miracles. Oh, well, hey, he, he raised a dead chicken one day, so I'm going to get him to come and I think he can do something. You know why I think we don't necessarily see it in the text as to why she came to Jesus, but we know she came to Jesus because she believed he could do something. Why? Jesus would have been the smartest. He would have been the most intelligent, the most resourceful, amazing man in her life, 
period. He would never lie. He would never cheat. He would never steal. He solved all the problems. If there was a problem, he was the best problem solver. Why? Because he was God in the flesh. He would have been the wisest and most competent person in Mary's life. She would have seen that over and over and over again. Always obedient. Always following through. Always fixing issues and problems that would have risen up. And so she knew. And then she also, if you remember... When Jesus was born, she treasured in her heart deeply the reality of who he was. And so she knew, certainly, if anyone's going to be able to fix something, it's going to be Jesus. And so what is Jesus' response to his mother's comment to him about the problem of the groom's family? What did Jesus say to his mom? Listen, he said, look, woman, woman, what does that have to do with me? If I had talked to my mom like that, my mom is here this morning. What if I had talked to you about like that? You would have been like, Don't you talk to me like that. Now, you know, that's what we think whenever we, we read this. Because we think of the word woman. If you address, I would never address my mom as woman. But that word woman right here, was Jesus being disrespectful? Well, that word woman here is translated out to be the type of word that would be used uh, when we say the word ma'am. So Jesus did not address his mom like I would address my mom and I would say, mommy dearest. Mom, who I, mother, mom, who I love so great, so, so much. He gave a formal acknowledgement of his mom. It went from a term of endearment, mother, mom, to ma'am. So he really kind of said something like this. He said, ma'am, what does that have to do with me? Well, what's, what's going on there? Why is Jesus, why is Jesus separating right now? Why is he, why is he making this distinction about his mom? It's because he's beginning a separation between, uh, he's beginning uh, to separate and to, and, and to begin the start of him switching his allegiance to his, from his mom to the reason why he came to the eternal purposes of God. You see this in Matthew chapter 12. Listen to this, Matthew 12, while he was still speaking, speaking of Jesus to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was not, in Matthew 12, not rejecting his earthly family. He wasn't saying that these are not literally my mother's or my mother or my brother or my family. What he's doing is he is separating, he's emphasizing the eternality of spiritual relationships. And in a similar way here in John 2, Jesus is shifting the focus from this temporary earthly reality of his existence and his allegiance to his, to his mom. He's basically letting her know, hey, ma'am. It's shifting right now. Something's changing right now. My allegiance is now to my father. And notice what he says here. He says, he says, ma'am, mom, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does he point to right there? That word hour, is, it signifies the reality of the hour of his suffering. He's shifting in this conversation with his mom. His mom is coming to him with a temporary earthly problem. A wedding feast ran out of wine. They didn't make right preparations. Jesus, can you fix it? And Jesus says, ma'am, ma'am, 
There's a greater reality here. There's a greater purpose that I'm here for. And I am shifting. I am changing. I am turning. In essence, Jesus is saying, in essence, he's saying this. I haven't come to simply fix temporary earthly problems. I am here to deal with eternal realities. This is the shift you see that takes place in Jesus' life, what you see in the Gospels. Now he begins to shift to focus on eternal realities, the hour that was to come, the hour of his suffering, of his crucifixion, of dealing with eternal realities. Mary is coming and saying, hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. I think you can do something. And he says, ma'am, ma'am, this is not why I'm here. My hour has not yet come. There is an hour that is coming. And it's a shifting of a focus. You know, I, I think we often relate to God like this. We have a tendency to reduce Christianity down to a means of securing earthly realities instead of securing our eternal reality. We tend to be like Mary where we come to Jesus and we say, hey, we've run out of wine. We've run out of our resources. Can you fix it? Anybody in here ever seen the movie Wreck-It Ralph? You can talk to me. If you have kids, you've seen Wreck-It Ralph. It's a Disney movie. Okay, Ralph, it's a cartoon. Um, and Ralph is um, Wreck-It Ralph. It's, it's, a based, it's, a, it's a movie based upon a make-believe video game. And the movie is all about the characters inside the video game. You get to see their life inside the video game. And the premise of Wreck-It Ralph in the video game is that Ralph wrecks everything. And he goes around with his fists and he pounds on stuff in the video game and he breaks windows and he breaks doors and he wrecks it and he wrecks it and he wrecks it. And then there's another character. Anybody know who the character is that comes and fixes it? Fix it, Felix shows up. And what does Felix do? He has this golden hammer, this magical hammer, and he comes and he fixes everything that Ralph wrecks. He fixes and he bangs everything that Ralph wrecks and he makes it like it never happened. And I'm here, my contention here this morning is that sometimes we reduce Jesus down to a fix it, Felix. Christ becomes a fix-it Felix when we reduce him down to just a solution to all of our temporary problems. We might say things like this. Here, God, I messed this up right here. Can, can, Can you come in with your little golden hammer and can you fix it? Can you get me out of this jam? Or, or over here, God... I would really like it if, you, if I didn't have to walk through this trial. Can you, can, you really, can you really remove me from this difficulty, this suffering, this pain? Uh, you know, fix it, Felix. Can you come and help me out here? We're running around living in the effects of sin and brokenness, thinking that all we really need is just someone like fix it, Felix, to fix our earthly problems, and then everything will be okay. What does Jesus tell Mary? He says, Mom. I'm not here to solve this family's problem of running out of refreshments. This is not why I came. And sometimes this is what we think Christianity is all about. That Christianity is about Jesus making sure your life is pain-free and that you don't run out of wine, you don't run out of your provision, that this is what he's here for. And Jesus is looking at Mary and he's saying, Ma'am, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? I did not come for this just to turn water into wine. I didn't come just to heal people. I didn't come just to do miracles so people can look at a miracle worker. I came for an hour that is not yet here, but it's coming. 
And often, we look at Jesus and Christianity and we think he's like fix-it Felix. We live under the effects of a broken world where Ralph, who represents sin and destruction and pain and suffering, he's going around wrecking everything in our life, our marriages, our finances, our situations, everything. And we say, fix-it Felix, come and fix it all. And Jesus says, no, this is not why I came. What is amazing about Jesus is, it was interesting, I was talking to my wife as we were going through this a little bit with her. He did fix the temporary problem, didn't he? Isn't that that amazing? What's amazing about Jesus is that he did solve this family's problem of running out of wine. Why is that? I believe it's this. The eternal purposes of God and the compassion of God come together in the life of Christ. There was an eternal purpose of God that was at play. And this is what Jesus was trying to get Mary to understand. What does this have to do with me? This is not my problem. They didn't plan correctly. This is not why I came to fix temporary problems. I came for eternal problems. But the eternal purposes of God and the compassion of God come together in the person of Christ. And then he, so then he reaches out. And he turns water into wine and provides for that family. Isn't that the beautiful picture of who our God is? He has an eternal purpose, but he's full of compassion. And he meets us right where we are. And he does come and meet our needs and provide and take care of us. But may we never reduce Christianity down to a fix-it Felix religion. Where we tell people, this is is what Christianity is all about. Hey, you want out of your problems? You want out of your suffering? You want to have more finances? You want to have better health? You want to, hey, hey, come read about Christ. Come and receive Christ. He will fix all of your problems. So what is the, what is the basic lie that we are tempted to believe about this life? Here's the basic lie. If my life is free from trials or difficulties or wine that runs out, then I will have peace and joy. That's the basic lie that we believe. That's why we are susceptible to a false gospel concerning Christ. Is that we believe the lie that we believe is that that if this life is free from trials and difficulties or wine that runs out. If we're free from the effects of sin and pain. Then that then I will really have peace and joy. And Jesus is coming in this situation, this first sign that he is revealing to all the people that are there. He's demonstrating and showing, hey, I am God. I am God. I have greater things at play here than just turning water to wine. There's more at stake here. And this is what I would believe would be the first point of this sermon that Jesus could have preached after he turned this water into wine, that there is an eternal plan that God is at work fulfilling here in this story, but in our lives. And the purpose of that plan is to put his glory on display so that people would see Christ for who he is. They'd see Christ in the gospel for what it accomplished, that it wasn't a securing of, of a fixing of temporary things, but it was a securing of an eternal reality for all those who would place their faith in the finished work of the cross. Do you believe that today? The next point to the sermon might have sounded like this. So the first one 
is that God has an unfolding plan to put his glory on display. Mary, mom, ma'am, I'm not here to just fix earthly problems. There's an hour coming that I will, that where I will address mankind's real problem. Leading to the next section, the next thought. Here's the next thought here this morning. God's unfolding plan exposes every, every temporary source of joy. God has an unfolding plan to reveal his glory in the earth. The glory of the gospel, the glory of the power of Christ. And secondly, this unfolding plan, it exposes every temporary source of joy. Look back at the text. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. The mother of Jesus, the disciples were there. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. The wine ran out, they have no wine. Temporary sources of joy. The wine ran out. What does wine represent? You read it in the Bible, wine represents joy and gladness. Wine gladdens the heart, brings joy, right? That's a picture of, of what wine would represent in Scripture. They have no more wine. The wine ran out. Wine's a picture of celebration. This is a week-long celebration where they would drink wine to celebrate the wedding that was about to take place. What's powerful about this picture that you see in this miracle is that the eternal God became man and dwelled in the middle of a world that is decaying. Just think of the contrast. Here is eternal God in Christ. Christ as eternal God at this wedding and they run out of wine. Think of that. Eternality right there in the flesh and wine that runs out. What an amazing contrast. Mary, who is not eternal, comes and stands next to God eternal and says, hey, there's a temporary problem. that The wine has ran out. And the eternal God stands there and says, I'm not here to fix temporary problems. I'm here to fix problems that have eternal implications. But this eternal God came and dwelt in the midst of a world that is decaying and a world that is subjected to temporary resources, a world that runs out. In heaven where God dwells, there are no limits. There's no limits to the expression of the character traits of God. In heaven, nothing runs out. On earth, everything runs out. Right? Everything runs out. Time runs out. Money runs out. Anybody ever experienced money running out? It runs out of my wallet and checking account every day for something to do with my children. Just runs out, runs away, flies away like with, with wings. Cars stop working. Houses will deteriorate. Humans are subjected to death and decay. Drew Brees and Sean Payton had to retire at some point. Right? Things run out. We could not keep them for that long. Couldn't keep them for much longer, right? They retire. People move on. People run out of patience. People stop loving others. Empires fall. Presidential terms end. Birth and new beginnings are hijacked by decay and death. This is what Ecclesiastes 3 says. Look what God's word says. For everything there's a season. A time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to 
to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up with his planet. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, the wine ran out. And Jesus, in essence, says, ma'am, that is right. Wine runs out here on earth. But I didn't come to make sure wedding parties keep the alcohol flowing. That's not why I came. I came to deal with the reason why things run out in the first place. That's why I came. This is the message of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus came to destroy the power of sin and death. And this message and this thought right here and what is being exposed with wine that runs out is that men and women will run to many, many things in this life. And they'll scoop into containers of things that they think they're going to find joy. They'll pour glasses and they'll drink things and they'll consume things and they'll pursue things that they think will bring joy and gladness and peace. But but it's all going to run out. It's all going to run out. You, do, do you follow it? Are, are you following me? You see this contrast with temporary and eternal. And Jesus is saying, I have not come to make sure that wedding parties don't run out of alcohol. I have come to deal with the reason why things are broken here right now. Jesus came to destroy the power of sin and death. This is why Jesus came. So whatever your view of God is, If you don't have a view of God as that is his primary purpose and reason why he came, then you have a faulty view of God. He came to destroy the power of sin and death. And when we look at the world today, we see many people looking to a broken world to fix their broken lives. What are common places that people run to find happiness or joy? Just like that wine that they would drink at that wedding feast would bring joy and happiness. What do people run to? to find joy and happiness, and they realize it just is an empty well. People will often run to relationships. And they'll think that if I have the right relationship, the right marriage, the right person, then I'm going to have all that I need. You know, but the reality is, is that whenever you place all of your hope in a single human being, you are going to be let down. They are not. There is no human being that is an infinite source of joy and peace in your life. There is only one that can bring that in. His name is Jesus. So if you're running to relationships to find peace and satisfaction and joy, just like the wine ran out in that wedding feast, the wine will run out in that relationship. People run to sinful pleasures to find joy and peace and happiness. They'll run to sinful sexual pleasures, from relationship to relationship, from person to person, from experience to experience, thinking that that maybe the next one, maybe the next time, maybe the next experience is what is going to bring me peace and joy, but it is like the wine at the wedding feast. The wine runs out. It's emptiness at the end of those pursuits. What about a, a career, money, possessions? People will give all of their time and their energy to their career, and they think that, that if I can reach the pinnacle and the top of the ladder... In my career, that I'll be able to have the esteem and the, the praise of man. And then I'll be able to have a lot of money so I can buy all the, all the possessions that I could possibly ever want. And at the end, it's like the wine at the wedding feast. It does what? It runs out. It runs out. 
People run to drugs or alcohol. And they think that in a substance, in drugs or alcohol, that I'm going to truly find contentment, joy, and peace. And I'm going to be able to escape the problems all around me. But when the buzz is over, when you come down from the high, the brokenness is still there. Here's another one, another thing commonplace that people run to to find happiness or joy. People chase the approval of others. Are you busy chasing the approval of others? Oh, that is a hamster wheel that you must get off of right now. Man, oh, it is such a trap to chase the approval of others. And we think that if, if, if people will like me, if they'll think that I'm great and good and amazing and I'm meeting all of their needs and I'm getting their approval, then truly then will I be happy and have peace and have joy. It's kind of like this. Do you remember the, 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 the pre-GPS days? You remember the pre-GPS days? You know, now we have it all on our phones where we type in the address on our phone and, and they just tell us what to do. Well, before that, we had TomToms, right? What was another brand? Yeah, TomTom Garmin's was Gar- Garmin's. And you put a little screen with the little sticky thing, the, the suction cup thing, and you click it and it would stick on your dashboard and you drive. You know, when Estelle and I got married, we, did, we printed out turn-by-turn directions, we went online and printed paper and it had turn-by-turn turn, turn turn directions and we got to Tennessee. It worked, lo and behold, you know? But, 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 but pre-GPS days, pre-printing papers, right? When you would get lost, what would happen? You'd go in circles. Well, you stop and ask for directions, but if you're a husband, you don't do that for a while. So if you're a hard-headed male and you pre-GPS days and you didn't have a map and you didn't want to stop and ask for directions, what did you, what, you do? You would just go in circles. You know, it's kind of like NASCAR. It's like NASCAR. You know, chasing things that, 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 that don't bring ultimate happiness and joy. It's like NASCAR. It's like pre-GPS days. You just, what, what do they do in NASCAR? They just keep turning. Is it left or right? Left? You just keep turning left. Just keep turning left. You're going in circles. It always ends without joy, without happiness, without contentment, without peace. And this is what this picture is showing us here. That in this life, wine runs out. In this life, we are filled with brokenness and pain. And if we are looking to anything outside of Christ, we're going to be like NASCAR. Just keep turning left. Like a hamster in a hamster wheel. Keep going round and round. And so we come to the realization That Christ is our greatest satisfaction. Look what Isaiah 55 says. The prophet Isaiah says, come, speaking for the Lord, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money turning left like NASCAR? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Jesus is introducing a new reality into the lives of his family as well as the ones who found out about the miracle. The new reality is not that a miracle worker has come to deal with our temporary problems. But he's introducing a new reality, and the reality is this, that God has come to deal with our eternal problems. 
That is the reality that he is putting on display when he turns the water into wine. That's the reality. This world runs out of wine. This world is broken. This world is subjected to sin. And the only way that we can find true peace and joy and ultimately forgiveness is to look to eternal God. The God who can turn water into wine. The God who can raise the dead. The God who can heal the sick. He came ultimately to deal with our eternal reality. So the third point to this sermon that Jesus could have preached after this miracle. First one would have been that God has an unfolding plan to put his glory on display. Secondly, God's unfolding plan exposes every temporary source of joy. And thirdly, here this morning, God's unfolding plan points to Christ as the one who is the satisfaction of man's greatest need. I love this detail. Listen, look back at the text, John 2. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I cooked a gumbo on, for marriage night. It was a 30-gallon pot. Um, I, was, I think I cooked 20 gallons. We had a lot left over. Y'all should have all came to have some gumbo. So you get the picture here. There's six. Think of a cast iron, 30-gallon cast iron pot. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the, to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from. Notice, notice the details there. It says that the six water jars were used, that were used to fill with water. John notes that these pots were used for a very specific purpose. Jewish rites of purification. So what were Jewish rites of purification? These, these water pots, these six pots, he fills them up. He says, fill them up. These were pots that would have been used for Jewish rites of purification. Jewish rites of purification had to do with washing with clean water when someone was exposed to things that were considered unclean for the Jewish people. So these pots, these six big 20, 30 gallon pots were filled with clean water. And when a Jewish person was exposed to something that was unclean, they would come and wash with that water. And so these pots, what did they represent? They represented external cleansing. That's what they represented. Jesus said, fill those pots, those pots that are used to externally cleanse, fill those pots. Jesus used those pots to perform a miracle that pointed to the future reality of what? The internal, the, the internal cleansing that comes from the gospel. What a powerful contrast. Fill up these pots that are used to wash the outside. I'm going to do a miracle to show you that I can handle what's on the inside. Isn't that powerful? What a contrast. The gospel is not about external washing. The gospel is about internal cleansing. It's not about what we do on the outside. It's about what happens on the inside. Jesus is the answer to mankind's greatest need. And mankind's greatest need is not ceremonial washing. It's not external cleansing that is a first priority. Man's greatest need is not that they would quit sinning. Many, many people think that. Well, if, if man would just quit sinning, that would, be, that would fix all the problems in the world. No, if you don't deal with what's on the inside, man is just going to keep sinning. Man's greatest problem is not that they sin. Man's greatest problem is that they are sinners. And the only thing that will 
cleanse somebody from the inside is an internal cleansing that can only come from Christ. And Jesus, God eternal, is standing there and he's looking at these pots that are used for external cleansing when someone is made unclean as a Jew. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to do a miracle through those pots. And you don't get it yet. Mary, mom, servants, you don't see it yet, but you'll see it one day. My hour is coming that I'm going to die on the cross and, and, and absorb the wrath of God for your behalf so that you can be forgiven and you're going to get it that it's not about an external cleansing, it's about an internal transformation. That is the gospel message. Here's another detail that is so powerful. Six pots, 20 to 30 gallons. Look at what the text says next about those six pots. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the, to the brim. You know, Jesus could have just said, hey, fill it halfway. Looks like they're already all drunk. What, what did the master of the feast say? Right? After he turned the water into wine, he said, you saved the best for last. Everyone's drunk freely. Why would you serve the best for last? So everyone has freely drunk for a while. Jesus could have just provided, you know, just, just enough. But what did he say there? He said, fill them to the brim. So what would that have been? If it's six, let's just say, I, don't, I didn't check my math accurately here. So let's just say, it's, I think, 25 gallons. It looks like that's what it, that would work out to be 250 gallons of wine. That is a lot of wine. I'm telling you, we had 10 pans of gumbo left over. Ten, ten little pans of gumbo. That was like 20 gallons, 15 gallons. 250 gallons of wine approximately. That's a whole lot of alcohol for people who have already been drinking alcohol. What, what, what did Jesus do? He provided more than enough. He provided more than enough. Some with leftover. Do you remember John 6, the feeding of the 5,000? There was 12 baskets full left over. What does that communicate to us about our God? Our God is lavish. That is the lavish nature of our God. That is the lavish nature of the gospel. God eternal standing there. Mary looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, hey, they they ran out of wine. Jesus says, ma'am, this is not why I came. I came I came to reveal a greater reason, a greater purpose as to why I'm here. And you think I'm just going to be a miracle worker. And many of us here today, that's what we've reduced Jesus down to. He's just, he's just, He's just here to to work miracles and to fix our problems. And Jesus says, no, I'm here to reveal a greater reality. And it is the reality of the gospel that, that, that unless men are saved, they will spend eternity separated from God forever. This is what I came to deal with. And let me show you a picture of what that looks like. Fill those water pots to the brim. More than enough provision. More than enough I'm a lavish God. I am a God who provides to the brim. The gospel is lavish. The lavish nature of the gospel. Is this not a picture of the nature of the grace of God that is made available through the cross of Christ? 1 John 3, 1 says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. God lavishes his love on us. What a picture of the lavish nature of God. Look at Ephesians chapter one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
according to the riches of his grace. What did he do with that grace? Did he give us a little bit of grace halfway? He filled the pots halfway? No. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Do you get that, this picture here? There's a plan for the fullness of time. Mary, I'm not here to just turn water into wine. There's a plan for the fullness of time that I am about. And that is a plan to lavish grace on people. Amen? You guys are either tired or I've been preaching too long. That word lavished comes from the Greek word perisuo. Perisuo. It means this. It means to be in abundance. To provide in abundance. To have more than enough. Excessive. To shower on. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he showered on us. He gave us an excessive amount to, to have more than enough. He provided in abundance his grace. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what I believe this picture of this miracle in John chapter 2 demonstrates to us. That God has an eternal plan that he is unfolding. And that eternal plan centers on the reality that God wants to lavish his love and his grace upon us through the cross. To the brim. Not just enough. Not, not, not just enough, but more than enough. You guys ever been to a, you guys ever been to a uh, sporting event? Let's just say football game. We got a football game later on this evening, don't we? 5.30, Joe Burrow's going to beat Los Angeles Rams. Go Tigers. You ever been to a game and one team is a whole lot better than the other team? It's excruciating to watch. And you want the other team to show mercy. But they just want to prove the point about how great they are. So what do they do? They just pile on the points. They pile on the points. They make the victory so undeniable. They just keep showing you over and over again, we got the victory we want. It is a complete, utter, total victory. That is a picture of what Christ did on the cross. He piled on the points. He lavishly demonstrated to all of human history that once and for all, sin and death were destroyed through the cross. This is our God. God has lavishly poured out his love and his grace through the cross. It is more than enough. He piled on the points. It was an eternal victory. Ma'am. Ma'am. That's why I came. I'm not interested in wine. I'm going to heal the man born blind. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to heal the man with the withered hand. I'm going to do all those miracles. But that is not why I came. I came to show you. I came to show you who I am. So that you would understand why I came. Only God could pay the price for sins. 
And this is the picture of the miracle of the, of the water into wine. This is the picture of all the miracles you read throughout all the Gospels. It's the reality that only God can pay the price for sins. Only God can pile on the points. Only God can fill it to the brim. Only God can satisfy the wrath of the Father on sin. Only God can absorb that. Only God can defeat death and hell forever. It's only God. This is the point of the miracle, the water into wine. It's not the miracle, it's what? It points to. And so I want to end like this. What are you looking to in your life? Are you looking for Jesus to turn some water into wine in your life? Don't reduce him down to just a fix-it Felix in your life that goes around and he, he's filling up water pots and he's turning water into wine and he's doing this and fixing that. That's not who Jesus came to be. He came to secure your eternal reality and destiny. And, and, and if, if, you live the rest, if we live the rest of our life with the trials that we walk through, he is worthy of our worship and prayer and our adoration forever. If he never fixes any of our wine running out, if he never fills the water pots and changes our water into wine, he deserves our worship because through him, we don't have to spend eternity in hell. Through him, we can be forgiven of our sins. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today I want to ask you, what are you looking at? What are you, what are you gazing at when you see Christ? You see God eternal in his glory, his majesty, and his power. Or do you see a God that you can manipulate and control? Are you worshiping him and his power and his glory and his beauty for what he's done? Or are you sitting back waiting for what he, for what you want him to do? God has an unfolding plan that he set forth in Christ. And here's the point of the unfolding plan. Listen, this is it. God has an unfolding plan. He began to show it to Mary, his mother. The unfolding plan is this, that all might look to him and find true satisfaction. That's the point of the unfolding plan of God. Simply put, turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to Jesus. And that's what I want to do here. I want to end singing that song. The worship team is going to sing a song called Turn Your Eyes to Him. Would you stand with me? Let's turn our eyes to Christ here this morning. Hallelujah. God, it just amazes us that you would lavish your love upon us. And you would give us just a part of your eternal purpose. Lord, we lavish our praise on you for you are good you are holy and you are worthy and God as we go forth your people your chosen I pray God that you would help us to lavish your kind of love in our community on those we work with those we live with those in our neighborhood 
Help us, God, in the midst of this world to earnestly contend for the faith, to be your light, to reflect your glory. We humble ourselves before you. Use us this week, God, as part of your eternal purpose to bring glory to our Savior, Jesus. We pray in your mighty name, Lord. Let us say amen. Amen. Love you guys. See y'all next week.